Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 173.5, where we interview Brent, the food truck CEO, and talk about starting a retail business right before a worldwide pandemic. And you have to be willing to fail and then know you're going to fail again and keep failing and keep failing and keep failing and not let that break you down because there's books on being an entrepreneur, but I don't think that they're for everybody. They don't speak to your specific situation. So be flexible, be willing to fail and learn to have very thick skin because you're going to get a lot of feedback whether you want it or not. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my pizza loving co-host, Scott Trench. Right to the point this time. No, no cheesy intro today. <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or start your own food truck business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so that you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Today's episode, we are bringing back the guest that we had on last episode, sort of. Our last episode was recorded in January of 2020, but we brought Brent back to talk about the experiences he had starting his own business. We don't really talk about starting your own business. We do have a sister show called the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, and they talk about businesses in general. But we wanted to bring Brent back because of his experiences over the last year and the fact that he did start a retail business right before a pandemic broke out and he still managed to make it successful. So I wanted to share his story with our listeners today. Yeah. And and for some additional background, obviously yesterday's episode, you should go back and listen to that if you haven't yet, because this episode will make much less sense without that. But basically we interviewed him last year and right before the pandemic hit and the pandemic hit, we thought, oh, we can't talk about this right now. There's more pressing immediate concerns to you guys, the listeners, than this particular money story. Even though it's a great money story, we just had to change up some things and record some, some new episodes real quick to address how to handle things during the pandemic. So we're pleased to be able to release this great episode or yesterday's great episode and then follow up here. Uh, And we think that it's actually going to work out really well. Yeah, I'm super excited to bring in Brent. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When we last spoke to Brent, he was Brent from Debt and Cupcakes, a newly retired former nurse who had paid off $109,000 in student loan debt. We shared his debt payoff story on episode 173 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, but that episode was actually recorded in January of 2020, before he launched his food truck business, before COVID, before the shutdown. Now he's Brent, the food truck CEO, and he's here today to share how he started a super successful retail business despite a worldwide pandemic and a nationwide shutdown. Brent, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Hey, thank you for having me back. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. I I have too. Oh, I have followed your progress and it is exciting. Oh, spoiler alert. Uh, He did a good thing. When we last spoke with you, almost a year to the day, you had just paid off $109,000 in student loan debt, became financially independent, retired from your toxic day job, and were starting a food truck business. You really need to have more ambition, Brent. (laughs) I try. We were all set to release your show in early March when the pandemic hit, the United States shut down, and a story about paying down massive debt and purposely leaving a good-paying job seemed to ring a bit hollow when all of a sudden the stock market's crashing, tens of thousands of people are immediately out of work and not by choice, and wondering how they're going to pay their bills and buy groceries. So we put your episode on the back burner and published more immediately relevant episodes. But your original episode was really great. I follow you online. I've seen your amazing progress, not to mention your uh, pizza porn pictures. If you don't follow Brent at the food truck CEO, you really should because he, oh, your pizza looks so good. Not that I know what it tastes like. So to start a food truck, that's like not an inexpensive venture, right? I mean, you can't just cook in the back of your minivan, right? Yeah, I mean, we did it initially. I would say probably the most cost-effective, inexpensive way possible. Not jumping too far ahead, but we're actually on our second food truck already. We upgraded about three-quarters of the way through the year. So we started with a pretty small 15-foot trailer with a wood-fire oven on the back. And we had a canopy and tables and table coverings. And you know, we did it all start to finish for 40-some thousand, I would say. And that's a total business start to finish. So that... Sounds like a lot of money, but to launch a business is is pretty cheap. So as the the food truck CEO, I'd love to walk through the unit economics of the pizza business real quick on the show here. So you you invest $40,000 into the pizza truck, into the startup costs, right? That's your CapEx investment or your, your investment. And then how much are you selling a pizza for and what does it cost per pizza on average? So I won't get into the too much of the details. That's a quick way to make people upset. But I'll say <laughs> it's um, we started selling pizzas at a different price than we currently sell them at because I was trying to figure out where my where my customer base was and what I should be charging. So we started selling it at you know ten to twelve dollars for a twelve inch round pizza. That was where we started at. Um, we're currently at thirteen to fourteen dollars for a twelve inch pizza. And a lot of the the deal with increasing the prices was just trying to slow down some of the orders that we were getting. When you're that inexpensive, you can get mobbed really fast. And then couple that with being a new business and you end up creating some problems for yourself. So we definitely had to increase our prices, but it didn't slow down our business too much. I would say, you know, we operated about a 65 to 70% margin. And that's where we finished for pretty much the year. And is that before or after labor? Like, cause you said, you said you have some employees and those kinds of things. Yeah, that's after. After labor. Okay. So yeah. So I'm just doing some round numbers here, but it, it sounds like you're bringing home about six, $7 per pizza. How many pizzas do you have to sell in order to recoup your investment? We were able to recoup our startup costs, uh, I would say by the end of July um, of the first year. So a six month recovery period. Wow. So you're, you're, you're selling a, a tremendous number of these pizzas, it sounds like. Yeah, we do. We do fairly well. Yeah. And we don't have a ton of employees. No, 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 no. You don't do fairly well. You do amazing. How many times have you gone to a location and not sold every single pizza? Uh, I'd say we sell out more than we don't. Yeah. We pretty much sell out almost, I wouldn't say every time, but a lot of the times we, we do sell out. There was times we sold out before we even opened and that causes a lot of problems. 
Now, is that is that intentional to sell out, or is that because that's the efficient use of all of the ingredients and those kinds of things, or is it like is it almost like part of the business model because you're not reusing any ingredients or whatever from run to run? You're always starting fresh with with the stuff from that day. Yeah, we definitely use. I try to use the freshest ingredients we can possibly find. You know, I have a distributor where I have to get my cheese and things like that through, which has a slightly longer shelf life. However, selling out is a good thing because I don't want waste. For one, the dough is very hard to carry over event to event. I make all my own dough. It's fresh at every event. If I have back-to-back-to-back events, I can roll dough over from, say, you know Thursday to Friday, depending on the temperature outside, how long the dough has been out of refrigeration, and if it's too far through the fermentation process. If it's too far, I have to throw it away. If it's not, I can throw it back in the fridge, and it actually just turns into better dough the next day. However, selling out is extremely beneficial for that reason. And also it creates selling out's great marketing because people want to be there before you sell out next time. So you want to bring enough that you think you're going to sell out, but you also want to bring enough that you serve the vast majority of the customers there. So you're not turning people away. It's a very fine, it's a guessing game. Trying to hit it right every time is very difficult. So are there huge lines in front of your your truck at each of these events? Sometimes. Yeah, we had a few. There was one event and I remember it and actually like waking up at midnight, give me nightmares. We were getting ready to open and I came outside to flip the, this is when we were in the new food truck. So we were inside and we had our window closed. We couldn't see outside of the food truck. And I walked out when my staff got there to open the window to say we were open. And there was just a line of people around the food truck and it stretched around the corner. And I was anticipating a slow day. And I just remember looking at that and just cursing in my brain, like we're going to be in the weeds all day. And I had one person with me besides my wife, you know, cause it was a day, some days we plan to be slow and I'm trying to train people up on things. And I'm like, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. Let's see what happens here. So you started this business from a position, you know, like uh, a retirement or whatever, and kind of because of something you wanted to do here, how much of the income were you kind of hoping for to supplement or use in your lifestyle? Was it any, or, or can you remind us of that? So retire is a a weird word. I I wouldn't consider myself retired at all. Definitely still want to work. Definitely still like to provide income. The pizza business, I want that to supplement all of our income. I want that to be everything. My wife is still a registered nurse. So she works her nursing gig. She works from home, you know, running an education department for a really large healthcare organization. So we're lucky enough that most of the food truck money is either reinvested back into the business or we're continuing to save. And now I've started actually to invest more. I started to back off last year just because of the pandemic. There's a lot of uncertainty and I wanted to be very cash heavy. So a lot of the money we were making, I was keeping in cash outside of our usual smaller investments that we were continuing to make. But we started diving back in last fall. What is uh, reinvesting the, the dough you're generating look like for you? In terms of what are we purchasing? Yeah, what are you purchasing? Yeah, sorry. That was, yeah. Just okay. When you say dough, I'm here. not sure if you're throwing puns at me. You're asking. But both. <laughs> throwing yeah. puns at you. <laughs> There's a lot of pizza puns. <laughs> There's a lot of pizza puns. Um, you know, we upgraded our trailer last year. I wanted to do an enclosed trailer from the beginning, but I'm not a big risk taker. So I wanted to start the business and see where we were. And, and maybe that sounds silly because I quit a good nursing job uh, to start a food truck. Maybe I am more risk taker than I thought. But I didn't want to spend $50,000 on a trailer, not sure how it was going to go. So once we started to see that this was working during a pandemic, we're like, okay, we have something here and let's go forward and let's make this what we wanted to make it. So we worked with our original oven builder and a trailer company to build another trailer, a 20-foot enclosed trailer with a big wood fire oven on the back that feeds to the inside. And that's a a $52,000 investment is about what it came out to after you know I got some discounts because it was my second trailer. But yeah, that's a lot of reinvesting in the company. Now, you said you, you brought home around 40000 or so, give or take, in, in margin after ex- operating expenses between like January and July earlier. Is that, is that about right, kind of in that ballpark? Yeah, July, early August, something like that. January last year was extremely slow. You know, I was happy with what we did because we were just starting, but it was a looking back now. I mean, my wife and I talk about how, you know, almost comical it was when we started. We're like, oh, wow, we sold 30 pizzas today. This is awesome. And we were, we were pumped at that. And, you know, now in one event, I'm making what I'm, we sell as much as we sold in January of last year. So it definitely has ramped up. 
So with that, are you factoring in your time in that, or is that, is that the kind of the fruits of your labor, that, that income? I've started to factor my time in. Initially, I didn't. Um, there was, it's a lot of time. You know, working a, my old job feel, would feel like I wasn't working anymore, to be honest. It, running my own business, I definitely underestimated how much time it would take to run a pizza food truck from making the dough, you know, balling the dough. And, you know, Mindy, she follows me on Twitter constantly changing and testing and working to try to make my dough better and better and better. It was a still a constant process. And then, you know, trying to network, meet different owners to go cook at their locations, cutting firewood, splitting firewood, stacking firewood. I mean, it's, I started to take my time into consideration. I've actually started to pay for things that I was doing on my own because I needed to work on bigger parts of the business, not necessarily like deep inside of the business. Well, I think that's a really good point. In the beginning, you have to be able to do it all. You can't really afford to pay people to do this. I, I Do you have a firewood splitter at least? Are you not like swinging an ax? Nope, I'll do it by hand. Oh, okay. So that's a bit of work. Um, that's a great workout, getting your workout in while you're working on your company. Um, but yeah, after a while, you want to go and buy a lot of firewood. I know you live on a farm, so you have space to store it. But if you're not willing to do everything in the beginning, you need to have relationships with people who can do it in a cost-effective manner because when you're starting a business, you really do need to be conscious of costs. And I think even from a position of financial independence, you still can't spend every bit of your retirement money on starting a company and then it fails. I mean, $40,000 for a trailer sounds like a lot of money to me. And then you're like, well, I got one for $52,000. I'm like, oh, that's even more money. What did you do with the first yeah. trailer? I'm in the process of selling it. I have it stored right now in our pole barn. Okay. I was fortunate enough, my father-in-law came and we did, well, I shouldn't say we, he did a lot of detail work on it. You know, one year of pulling that around, it beats it up a little bit, you know, chipping the paint and things like that. So I have a, a one person that's interested in buying it out in uh, Delaware, I believe. But I'm not in any big rush for that. You know, there's opportunity may come when I'm not expecting it. I mean, 2020 was a perfect example of that. So whether or not we keep it and run two, which sounds like I want to, I don't have any hair left, but if I did, it would all fall out trying to run two. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it just yet. Hopefully sell it. So what's kind of the next move for your pizza business here? Like like are you are you just kind of scaling up or are you trying to like what 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 do you what do you, what comes next now that you're it sounds like you've got wonderful day-to-day -day economics of the business even though it's but a, but a lot of hours getting poured in. Yeah, this year I have a goal to operate more. We were cooking 3 4 days a week on average last year. Uh, we had some weeks we did 5 events in July, you know, J July last year was a great month. I mean, we ran like crazy though. And when, when it was over, you know, you're very tired, but you know, I'm looking to operate four or five days a week. The biggest hurdle last year was staffing to be totally honest. When I look back, trying to find people that are going to work for us, be reliable and want to be there is important. If you're working in that close proximity with people, you definitely need them to be on the same page. And I am very lucky now that I have a very good core group of staff members who want to do this. They're all, you know, high school, college kids, but they're actually interested in doing it, not necessarily just making some money. So mm. I see a lot of good things of being able to operate more throughout this year. And um, from an income standpoint, I have, I should probably be focused more on how much I want to make, but you make the money by getting out there and cooking the food. They, they kind of come, they, they go together. If I'm not willing to put the work and the time in to go to events, then I'm not going to make the amount of money that I want to make. So in a perfect world, I'd like to double what I did last year. And um, it's, it's a big goal, but I think we can do it. I had typed in a question. Do you have any time off or you are, are you at every single event? It sounds like you've got some really good employees. I know there was one kid that you really, really were impressed with. He just seemed to want to learn everything about the business. Have you ever considered giving him the reins and letting him run an event and see how that goes? Or is that, I mean, I would think that as a, as a business owner, you're kind of a control freak because <laughs> you kind of have to be. I mean, this is your business. If you let somebody else run it and they don't do it right, that's your money that they're wasting away, not really their money. So... Is it fair to categorize you as a bit of a control freak? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm a okay. type A person. Yeah, 100%. And 
I, you, you're right. You have to be when you run, I don't know about running another food truck. I've never had a food truck that I make hamburgers or lobster rolls or anything like that. What we make requires a lot of skill to make it. Uh, you we're hand stretching all of the dough and then it goes into an oven that's 800 plus degrees. And if you're not cooking the pizza properly, it can either be undercooked and breaks apart or it turns into charcoal. And you know, the difference between those two things is 30 seconds or not turning it at the exact right time and you burn one side of the pizza. So I like to be on the oven. I do have a few staff members now who um, have showed a lot of interest in business. I have one kid who I have taught how to cook and he does cook at some of the events. He just cooked at one this past Saturday and I'd like him to cook more and I'd like to be able to step back to do a couple other things rather than just focusing on the oven. Cause if you're focusing on the oven at an event, that's all you're really focusing on. You can't step away and talk to people because if you do, you're going to burn everything that's inside. So yeah, I'm always going to be there because I believe you can ruin the reputation of your food with one really bad event. And I don't want that to happen. You know, adjusting for seasonality in those types of things, what do you think kind of like the, the potential of this business is under your leadership with this, with this setup you have here? As far as growth? Yeah, as far as a number of pizzas sold or income or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we can do, you know, some of our best events have been 120, 130 pizzas and, you know, three, four hours. And that's clipping pretty fast. Everybody's hopping at that point. The seasonality of it, because I live in central Ohio, definitely plays a part in it. You know, it's January now. I'm watching the weather because I don't necessarily want to pull a 12,000, 13,000 pound trailer with snow on the ground. So we're working through a few things. We've been doing a lot more pre-orders. And that's actually the pandemic created that. So we do a lot more pre-orders. We make two different kinds of pizza. Um, I make a, a pan pizza, which I'm not a huge fan of making because it's messy and it's kind of boring to make, but people really like it. And it has a much better margin. So I tend to make that in the slower months. And then I actually don't even need any staff when I make that. My wife and I can handle those events just because of the way we have it timed out with the pre-orders. But I wish we lived in a warmer climate and I could operate full capacity like it's July every month. However, you know, January of this month is looking like it's going to be better than June of last month. So that to me is pretty remarkable. Or last year, I mean, I'm sorry. So I want to talk about those pre-orders for a moment. Is that you making the or taking orders in advance and you don't sell anything day of? You only take the pre-orders at that particular event? Sometimes. So we do it two different ways. Again, going back to those Detroit style pizzas that we make in the wood fire oven, it's not exactly the most efficient way to make them. I can make four every 10 to like 15 minutes. And if we do those at live events like we used to, we had a line at one point, and after four orders, five orders, you're at an hour wait. And people do not like that. So I just stopped making them. I cut it off in, in September, despite everybody wanting me to make them. So when I do those events, I do 100% pre-orders. You uh, three pizzas every 15 minutes, people know to order. I, we create our own little ordering system with this app that's actually used to schedule employees for work. We turned it into a, a pizza ordering system because it was free. And it took a minute to get everybody used to it, but now everybody's used to how they order. Um, I send the invoices through Square. And when we do those events, we get to the event. We don't take any live orders. Everybody's already paid up and they literally just drive through every 15 minutes and come to the window and take their pizza and go home. Can you bring the other trailer to these events to double your capacity with those? Yeah, that's actually something I get a lot. I get a lot of questions about that. Yes, I probably could do that. However, I would need another truck to pull it. We only have the one truck right now. I had to trade in two trucks to upgrade our truck to pull the new trailer. So we have one vehicle again, and it's for uh, for the business to pull a food truck. But I don't know that I'd want to run two of those ovens. That Then you get into, is it worth it? Paying the staff to run it, doubling your staff for a little bit more pizza, um, consuming all the extra firewood. And then, yeah, I, I don't know that I would want to do that. So... Let's talk about the setup here. You are doing prep in advance. You're chopping all the ingredients or do they come already chopped and like making all of the things as far as you can go before you get there, right? Are you actually like setting up the pizzas before you get there or is that what you're doing while you're at the event? So as far as the prep work, you know, that my dough that I make, if I'm making my traditional, the round pizzas, the dough starts 
three days before is when I mix the dough. I like to do a 72 hour fermentation between a mixture of a little bit of room temperature and then a lot of cold fermentation up to the event. Then when it comes to the ingredients, if I'm using a lot of fresh veggies, I'm chopping those either at the event before we open or right before in the food truck and get everything chopped, bagged and into the prep table and ready to go. The, as far as some of the proteins, depending on what it is, you know, we did an event on Saturday and I was cooking bacon there in the wood fire oven before we started putting it on big sheet trays and putting it in the oven while I was warming the oven, I was cooking the bacon as well. And then that'll come out, you know, we'll cool that, drain it, bag it, put it back in the top of the prep table. So it, it really depends on what we're making and what kind of ingredients that we're using. Oh, okay. What you're making. You have how many different types of pizzas that you offer and do you offer those at every event or is it like hit or miss? So it's probably 20 plus different types of pizzas that we've put together over the year. And a lot of them have come from customers. I have a rule. If a customer wants a pizza, then they have to tell me what's on it and they have to name it. If they don't name it, I won't make it. Like you got to name the pizza if you give me an idea. So, you know, we get some ideas from customers. I'll name it either after them if they name it or whatever they want it to be called. And we usually do four to six pizzas per event just because we don't have a ton of space in the food truck to bring all these different ingredients. And it would just be a nightmare of, of waste, I would say. Okay. Now I have a new life goal to get a food truck CEO pizza, or I'm sorry, farm fired pizza named after me, which means I have to go to Ohio. So a lot of people, I think, listening to this are going to, are going to be thinking, Hmm, you know, you had this, this good job in a a stable financial position, and then you go into this new business line, the pizza business. And while you you can make good income, you probably did make good income in, t- in 2020 and you, you have potential to earn more. It seems like a lot of grueling work and and lessons learned and, and tough stuff. But it also sounds like you just completely love it and are thrilled with the decision. Can you walk us through that mental? Why this business again, just as a reminder, and why how, how are you feeling about your decision a year later? So the... The reason we started it is it was kind of a by accident thing. Who doesn't love pizza, right? Everybody loves pizza for the most part, whether it's a pizza that I think is disgusting or somebody else thinks it's a beautiful pizza to somebody, everybody loves it. So I always liked making it. I was never that great at making it a few years ago, but we'd always try. And then just out of kind of boredom and wanting to do something different, uh, I built a little wood fire oven in my driveway. It no longer exists because I'm not a mason and it fell apart after about a year. But I started cooking in this little wood fire oven. I'm like, oh, I like this. I found a couple mentors just through Instagram talking to people and started learning actually how to make dough. And we couldn't find any pizza where we lived that we liked. And we came from an area in Western Pennsylvania before we moved here that had really good pizza. So like, we'll just make our own. And we started doing that and it kind of just turned into this thing. Leaving the stable job, you know, a stable job is, is well and good. We, we did very well. We paid off all of our debt, um, except for our home. We still have our, our mortgage. But whenever you hate what you do and literally, you know, 40 hours a week turns into every hour of the week because you're thinking about it. You're not happy with the decisions that are being made. You don't agree with them. And you're going insane because you're so unhappy, then at that point, money is irrelevant. At some point, you have to stop and think about, do I want to be 70 years old and look back and be unhappy with what I did with my life? And so we just took a chance. I'm extremely happy with the decision. It is a ton of work. And I didn't recognize how much work it was before we started it. You think that, you know, you make pizza, you go to an event and you're, you work for four hours a week. You know, the number of people that ask me, what do you do all week when you're not doing this? I don't even want to explain it to them because it would take too long to do it, but it's grueling. I would say it's 80 plus hours easy when we're busy, you know, getting up at 5 a.m. making dough and trying to get everything done before the event. But I would not, I wish I would have done it sooner. I wish I would have been more intelligent with my finances in my 20s. So I could have started this in my 20s because I feel so fulfilled with what I'm doing, handing somebody a pizza and them telling you that they love what you are making and it makes them happy. You know, I never got that from my old job outside of being an ICU nurse. That was probably one of the most fulfilling jobs that I ever had outside of doing that. This is, I mean, the motivation that comes from that is unbelievable. That's, I think the big takeaway here for me is because like, Brad, I'm listening to this and I'm like, 
this sounds like a terrible thing for me as a person. <laughs> like, I do not want to be chopping firewood, waking up at 5 a.m., making dough, all that kind of stuff with the pizza. But like, you love it. And everybody has that. And everybody, I think, has, even if you love your job right now, like you love the ICU gig there, there will come a time, I think, in most people's career where they hate it and, and, it, and it will be upsetting or it will be difficult or it will be frustrating or whatever. And like, if you don't build the financial position capable of giving yourself options to do those other things, you're going to be miserable with that because you can't take the chance that you just took with this, right? You, you, you know, you may not have been retired or, or all the way there with these things, but you had at least a stable enough position to be, to take your shot on this business. And you're, you're, you're happier now working 80 hours a week and something you love than you were 40 hours a week and something you hated. Is, is that a reasonable summary or articulation of the situation? Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. It is. It's, it's a ton of work, but when you love what you do, it's so cliche. Everybody says it. If you love what you do, you don't work an, an hour of your life or however it goes. That's kind of true. There are some days where you're tired. You don't necessarily want to be you know, balling dough for two hours or something like that because it, it's a very tedious job. But when you look back at the macro of the whole thing and you love the creation, you love being in control of your life, it's hard to go back. I couldn't imagine going back to working for somebody else after doing this for myself for a year. I think I would probably be a horrendous employee at this point. <laughs> now, j- just in case someone didn't listen yesterday, could you just recap your financial position for us one more time? That you, the financial position you had before you started the pizza business here. Sure. Yeah, it took us. Uh, I think it was about five years or so to pay off one hundred nine thousand dollars of debt, and it was a mixture of, you know, car loans, student student loans, credit card debt, random other tractor debt. Because I mean, who doesn't need a giant tractor at the time when you don't own any property? You know, just stupid emotional spending that we were doing when we weren't you know, really thinking about our finances. So, you know, it took us about five years to pay that off. Once we paid that off, you know, we developed our emergency fund. We followed all of those boring steps that people, you know, kind of don't want to do. But if you follow them, it eventually takes you somewhere really good. You know, we created the emergency fund. Once we had our emergency fund, we really started investing, whether it was with our 401ks or post-tax brokerage. Then you got kind of this idea of the business and we started allocating some money toward uh, saving up to make the purchase for the business because when we launched the, f- the first food truck, we bought the food truck, all of the equipment and the initial truck. We did all of that in cash. We started with no debt in the business whatsoever. And maybe that wasn't the best idea. I, don't, I truly don't know. I mean, it, it probably would have worked out either way, but it, it gave me a lot of freedom and... Um, you know, confidence that even if it's slow for a month, it doesn't matter. We don't have anything hanging over our heads. Do, do you think if you'd use debt to finance the business that you'd be as happy right now as you are? Uh, probably not. I mean, owing somebody something is never, in my opinion, a, something that I want to do. Um, I don't think all debt is bad. I'm not, you know, the. I'm perfectly fine having a mortgage with my home. We just refinanced. We have a loan in the two percents. You know, paying that off, in my opinion, just isn't what I want to do right now. But if I would have had debt on the business, I think it would have added a level of stress that I didn't need because I thought I knew what I was doing and I didn't know what I was doing from a food truck. So then it would have added a whole nother dynamic in that probably would have drove me nuts. Yeah. I, I think, I think in the case of a business like this, that using debt to finance that first $40,000 or so of acquisition is is tough. I think if you're buying an existing business, for example, with that that's been in, in operation for five, ten years, has pretty stable cash flows and those kinds of things, debt can be used to get that started that much faster. But I, I like your decision not to use debt in this in this particular endeavor because it was so experimental, so new to you. I think that I just imagine that there's a misery that comes with owing the bank for you know, maybe you purchase a little more than you should if you're using debt, you're not as as careful and some of those things. And and it takes you until January of this year to finally pay it back um, or have the option to pay it back. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Did you use debt to finance the new trailer? Half. Yeah, I paid half of it in cash and we did an SBA loan for the other half. And um, I had no idea um, much about what the SB loan was going to turn into. The, the rate was good, but at the time, because of the pandemic, the the government is is paying that. 
So they're currently paying the principal and interest on that loan. I think for, they said six months, it may go longer. So even though we purchased this, uh, the first payment would have been, I think, September, October, you know, we haven't paid anything on that yet. They're continuing to pay that. And I think they will until March or April. And they said it may extend past that as well. Wow. What's the term on that debt? Is it, is it a couple of years? Uh, five. Yeah. Five years. That's great. So they're going to pay a good chunk of that for you. Yeah. They'll pay a good chunk of it. And we have the cash to pay it off. We could just wipe it out if we wanted to. It's just, I don't know, again, trying to think long-term, is that money better spent somewhere else? You know, I have other things that I, I need, you know, I need another mixer for the business. The mixer we have, I outgrew it very fast. And so I'm, I'm having to spend more time mixing dough where if I had another mixer or a bigger mixer, that would free up hours some days of time. So it's like, well, I want to spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars, invest that, or do I want to put a couple thousand dollars into something that, you know, I may have to spend a couple hundred dollars on per month until I'm ready to pay it off. It's trying to make the best decision is something I struggle with. I was just going to say, how do you decide what you want to do? Is there like a cost benefit analysis that you can do? Because it seems to me that dough is so important. It's the foundation of pizza, but it's really important to get your dough mm-hmm. right. So having one of those, like those big, big mixers, right? Is that what you're talking about? I have a 20 quart right now, which is pretty large. People would probably look at that and think that thing is gigantic. And I can mix 35, 40 pizzas in it, depending on the type of pizza, the hydration and the size. But if I'm bringing 120, 150 pizzas to an event, then I'm doing three, four, sometimes five batches of dough. And each batch takes about 45 minutes with my process of mixing with the rests and certain things that I do. That's a lot of time. Yeah, so what is the next size that you could get? So this is a 20 quart and you do what, three batches? So what is the next size up? I mean, it can go, there's you know a, a rabbit hole that's very deep as far as mixers goes. I use a planetary mixer, which is like a, a KitchenAid mixer, um, except much larger. I have a Hobart and I could go to a 30, 40, 60 quart mixer, which are very big. They do require a different type of electricity. Um, they would have to go to 220, which is different than the 110 that I have. So that's a, a cost to take in as well. But, um, and then there's also things called spiral mixers, which you can get a larger spiral mixer and it actually mixes the dough a little bit better. So I probably would go up to like a... Oh, do you have an electric dryer? Yeah, that was my thought. Can you just, does it come with that big plug? You could just stick it in the dryer and see if it works. Yeah, except I don't do that. Yeah, I don't do that stuff here though. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can, but then you, you have to look at what you can do with where you're where you're making it. And um, having two mixers is probably, they go into 110 would make the most sense. And I want to move to a spiral mixer. They're just a better better mixer. And, you know, I'm, we're starting to talk about next year, or the year after potentially moving to brick and mortar if this continues to grow and a spiral mixer is what I want for that. So um, it would be something that could roll into the next uh, possible step in a couple of years. Is there any market for used equipment? Like, can you go and find a used mixer to try it out and see if that's what you're looking for? Or do you buy used already? And I just don't know anything about restaurant business. Oh, I have used already. So there's a, a gentleman up in Cleveland who kind of refurbishes Hobart mixers. My Hobart mixer was probably on a Navy ship in Vietnam for all I know. The thing is old, but it is, they last forever. And he kind of goes through them and updates them and, and then sells them as refurbished. They go for three, $4,000. And I bought my first one for 1100. So I, I, I don't see myself buying a new mixer per se, as I would look for something. I already talked to him about getting something uh, refurbished. Listen up business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Okay, let's look back at all the things that you've learned this past year. Knowing what you know now, what advice do you have for someone who's thinking about starting their own business? Because it sounds like you've learned a lot in the trial by fire uh, school of, of learning. I would say, you know, I jumped into this maybe overzealous with what I thought I was getting into. Um, I wish looking back that I would have spent six months or even a year of hands-on work in a wood fire pizza shop. I wish I would have done that. I was doing it at my house, but there's a certain amount of being self-taught that just prolongs the learning. Um, I feel like I know it better because I'm self-taught, but I could have really shortened the learning curve up if I would have gone somewhere and been taught actually how to do this stuff. Um, the first thing that jumps into my mind though, as far as the actual business is when you do your first event, don't hype it up to the point that you are going to sell out when you don't know what the hell you're doing because it's a mess. <laughs> Our first event was, was uh, boy, it was my wife and I, one of my buddies from high school, and I thought we were going to, some people would show up and we sold out in really quick time and it was just chaos start to finish. And I feel like it took me a little bit of time to recover from that because maybe people expected something better than what I was making at that time. Knowing what you know now, Let's talk about financing the business because you did pay cash for your trailer. You invested from a position of as financially strong as possible. Your wife had a job that would be able to pay all of your bills. So you could go out and explore this 
idea. What sort of financial decisions would you have made differently if you knew then what you know now? Um, knowing now, I probably would have, I would have stayed with cash. I think launching a business, you want to make yourself as lean as possible to start because you don't know what's going to happen. And 2020 is the perfect example of that. We had no idea that the world was going to shut down and you're going to have to take your business from your whole plan and pivot it to a totally different direction. The fact that we were extremely lean financially in the business, uh, we didn't have any debt, made those decisions very easy. There wasn't the stress of, oh my gosh, we can't work, we can't pay our bills. So if if you're going to launch your own business, don't just jump into something with without looking down the road at the worst case scenario. If it fails, if you don't work for a month, what are you going to do? So I would say be very cash heavy. Um, Do it as much initially as you can in cash and stay away from debt. Um, It it frees you up and it gives you a lot more creative freedom too when you're not thinking about money. It sounds like you're being financially independent in your, or working towards financial independence in your business. Like the personal finance journey to financial independence is you aren't taking on more debt and you aren't, you know, spending money frivolously. And just like in your business model, you aren't taking on more debt. You aren't spending money frivolously. You're being frugal as a business person because you don't want to put yourself out there too far. There's a lot of parallels between running your own business and being financially independent, like running your own financial I don't think I don't think that changes even as you grow larger and larger, right? I mean, it's it's about spending less than you earn, increasing that gap, uh, having a sustainable long term view, and, and never putting yourself in a position where the short term financing overruns the long term interests of your personal financial position, your small business, or your very large business, right? Or or I guess medium sized businesses. We're here at bigger pockets, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I, we, we think about bigger pockets that almost the same way, right? Um, we think about those types of things. It's just cash flow, making sure that we always have lots of good options so we never have to do things that are against the long-term interests of the business, which is what you're doing. We can experiment and figure things out. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and being that I'm not, I'm not a trained business man, I'm not. I, I have no formal business training. I'm a registered nurse. And maybe that helped me because I wasn't looking at this from that total business standpoint. I was looking at it. I was managing my business, just as you said, as the same way I managed our finances for our home. I was just trying to do things that made sense, that didn't make me feel uncomfortable. And if we had an issue where we didn't have events, if I broke both my legs and we weren't able to work, that I had enough cash reserve for the business that it wasn't going to hurt us. So yeah, I I just ran it like my home finances. I have a budget just from the same Excel spreadsheet for the business. The next tab over is for our house and I just run through them both. Yep. I love that you changed your pricing once you started becoming too, too popular. Um, I think that a lot of people who are starting a business are like, oh, I'm going to sell it for you know, X dollars and they never consider raising their prices or they consider like they start too high. I love that you tested the concept at uh, what was it? 10 and $12. And now you're at 13 and 14. Do you have any plans to raise your prices again? So for uh, the two different kinds of pizzas, the rounds are 13, 14. If I'm making one that has, uh, you know, more proteins on it, it will be more expensive. But with the squares, I just increased the price of my squares again. Um, they're an eight by 10 Detroit style pizza for 18 to $20 is what I charge for one of those. Because there's a lot more. I finally started taking consideration my time into making them was a conversation my wife and I had. And so we added in, we had to add some cost to it for that reason, because it takes so long to make them. I mean, it adds another 10 hours to my week to do one Detroit event. So if I do two of those a week, I'm adding almost 20 hours of my life into that. I just want to chime in that I completely agree with that. And I feel like you were clearly undercharging with that. If you're working 80 hours a week uh, during busy weeks, that that's a, you know, a 4,000 hour work year, right? And so at $80,000 in, in income divided by 4,000, what is that? 20 bucks an hour, right? Uh, I think I think your time is more valuable than that. And that's not being reflected in your pricing. So you mentioned something earlier that you'd be mad, for example, if you know how much margin I have on the, in, on a pizza or whatever. 
No, that's not the deal. There's that margin is evaporating because a highly, highly, highly skilled laborer, an artist potentially, uh, is spending is waking up at five o'clock in the morning to stir his dough in these little little vat uh, over the course of these hours <laughs> and, and to prepare for this event seven hours later, where he's going to sell 130 pizzas. Like that is a, I, I don't know. I just think I just think that 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 would be the, a place for to look. I would suggest because of the way that you're so devoted to your craft and those types of things that that's that's a different price point i think than than dominoes uh no no offense dominoes yeah i mean there's the cost of ingredients we use probably the most expensive ingredients you can find because those when it comes to food are 99 percent of the time the best ingredients as well it's not like other things you know part of my issue with raising my prices last year was because it was 2020 in a pandemic it didn't quite read the room to launch a food business. And then when people aren't working and they're coming to support me, and then I'm going to charge them more at that time, it didn't make a ton of sense. We did increase our prices twice last year, but it was something that came, it took me a long time to do it and a lot of thought to do it. And every time I do it, I always think I'm going to get, you know, negative feedback from customers about how expensive our food is. We haven't got that yet. And I started to think that some people just aren't going to be my customers. Not everybody's going to like what I make. Not everybody's going to like the style of pizza and not everybody's going to like my prices. So I can't try to please everybody because then I'm going to please nobody and we'll run ourselves right out of business. So once I made peace with that, it was a lot easier to increase it. And um, yeah, we haven't seen any negative kickback as of yet. And um, I'm still not sure where our final price point is going to go. I try to look at what other people are doing and stay somewhat in line with them, but I don't know what they're doing as far as their time. And I don't know what their ingredients are either. So a $15 pizza from a local pizza shop might be something I would charge $20 for if we were using the same ingredients or vice versa, or they would charge $20 for. So it's, it's hard to compare, but um, 2020 and the pandemic made it hard on me to charge people more for food. No, fair enough. I'm not. I, I can't argue with that. I just, I just, I'm glad you're re- continuing to to think about pricing as as a thing mm-hmm. there because um, what I hear is that your 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 customers are getting exceptional value uh, for the for that pizza that's being built by handcrafted, start to finish by you, and that, that's all. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I, I really do. Handcrafted artisan pizza is going to cost more than pizza at Costco, and that's okay. Pe- there are people. My I don't think my parents would ever be a customer of yours because they want to go to Costco and get the $9 pizza that's this big around. They don't find value in food, uh, you know, paying for like really, really crafty artisan food. And that's okay. They find value in other things. I find value in really good craft beer. I don't drink, you know, the big PBR and... Miller Light and my dad doesn't find value in that either. He drinks Bud Light and loves it. Brent doesn't even know what the thing that keeps the pizzas warm is called. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> the pizza warmer. It's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, there aren't you aren't going to be able to make everybody happy, but when you are running around ragged, clearly there is so much demand at $13. How much demand is there at $14? Oh, the exact same. How much is there at $15? How much is there at $16? Oh, at $16 it started to slow down. How much demand is there at $50? None. So you know that you need to be between mm-hmm. 13 and 50. And then, you know, as you adjust, you'll find a really good price point. And it seems like you already have, but you'll find a good price point where people find value and you're selling out, but you're not so overwhelmed that. That's called the price elasticity curve, if anybody's interested in looking at that. And it's a concept that's explored in economics. I I did study economics uh, in college and that. And Brent, that might be helpful to you as well if you think about some of that stuff is learning some of those concepts and how to do it. I mean, Mindy just put it out there. It's intuitive, but it could be it could be valuable if you're looking to kind of find that sweet spot. It's not intuitive. I don't think it's intuitive at all. I think it's you're like, oh wow, everybody loves my pizza. I'm doing great. Well, it, you know, oh nobody would buy it if it was a dollar more. That's not true. Nobody will buy it if it's you know a hundred dollars more. Unless I mean I don't know how good it is because you won't drive your truck out here. But um, <laughs> I've heard good things. 
But, you know, it can be like, like you said, oh, this is the middle of a pandemic. How could I raise my prices? Well, try it. See what happens. If you get such negative feedback, then that wasn't the right move for your customers. But it sounds like you got almost no negative feedback. Yeah, we didn't. And being that we're a food truck, it definitely offers offers us an opportunity to go to our customers. So we target specific locations because we know the people that are there are most likely, in my opinion, going to appreciate what we're offering. So we go to vineyards, we go to craft breweries. We started going to, with the pandemic, certain housing developments would have us out and we'd go set up in their housing development and people would just come out and order food. But we don't you know, set up in some spots where we don't know that we would do very well there. And for example, we did a, a Little League baseball tournament last year. Somebody requested us to go and cook at. That was the only event that I lost money on. I went and I lost money by making food for other people because nobody at a Little League baseball tournament wants to buy a $14 pizza. Most of them don't even want to be there by the looks on their faces. Everybody looked unhappy. <laughs> oh, they're miserable. People are bringing their own food in. You know, they're bringing... Yeah, it was 90 degrees and you know the place that wanted us to come and cook also wanted us to kick a percentage back to them to donate which makes sense and we we did that. But people that went there were bringing their own food, they were bringing their own drinks and they would just walk right past us and you know we I was expecting a very busy day so I made like 150 pizzas. I brought three staff members including my wife and I and I went home with less money than I came there with. So you have to know where you're, where your audience is at and go to them. That's a good tip. Brent, this has been fantastic. This is, I'm so excited to talk about your story again and to share your journey of uh, starting your own business in maybe less than ideal circumstances. Um, is there anything else you would like to share? Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah. If you want to start your own business, I think you have to go into it knowing that you have to be very, very flexible. You have to be willing to put in a lot of time and sometimes get a a negative reaction. You know, you're going to fail and you're going to fail a lot. I failed a lot. And you have to be willing to fail and then know you're going to fail again and keep failing and keep failing and keep failing and not let that break you down because there's books on being an entrepreneur, but I don't think that they're for everybody. They don't speak to your specific situation. So be flexible, be willing to fail and learn to have very thick skin because you're going to get a lot of feedback whether you want it or not. Brent, since you won't drive your pizza truck to Colorado, where can people find your delicious pizza? So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, the food truck CEO is my handle on Twitter. If you want to follow the, the business on Instagram or Facebook, it's Farm Fired Pizzas. And you can give us a follow there. Always posting pictures of pizza every day. I do the same thing on Twitter. And uh, yeah, you can find me there. I didn't know you were on Instagram. I'm going to go look at all of these. Oh, yeah. His pictures, if you like a good picture of pizza, you really need to go check out his pictures. They're beautiful. They do look good. Um, do you have a schedule of where people can go to get your pizza? Like a schedule of events? Yeah, so we put that together. Um, we're starting to do it now. I think pretty much I've booked up Thursday through Saturday for the whole year already for 2021. So I'll add that to our our website, farmfiredpizzas.com. That's going to be undergoing some maintenance here soon. I'm going to have a professional make it. But the uh, public events will be there. Uh, we also do private events as well. So we do graduation parties, weddings, wedding rehearsals, things like that. So you can find all that on our website. And each week on Instagram and Facebook, I share where we're going to be for that week as well. Oh, cool. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, Brent, thank you so much for coming on today. This was lovely to catch up with you after your uh, year of, frankly, ridiculous success, which is, I hope you feel excited about it because it sounds like you feel excited about it. You, you This is impressive. This is incredibly impressive. And I know I threw out a statistic that people have told me is incorrect and I don't care. The first 90% of small businesses fail in the first year in the first five years or something like that. But it sounds like you did research. You put forth some effort into, you didn't just say, you know, I'm going to start a pizza truck because I had pizza once. Like you've, you had a pizza oven in your driveway. You 
tried it out. You tested recipes. You're constantly working on it. You're not just sitting back and like, well, I made a pizza. You should love it because I made it. And I think that that just there's a lot of elements to your success that can't be overlooked. And I'm so pleased to share that with our listeners. So thank you so much for your time coming back to share your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope some you know people find some maybe some motivation from it to break away from something that they're unhappy with, and you know invest in yourself and see what you can do. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for sharing this. This was this is wonderful, and I do think a lot of people are gonna are gonna learn a lot from this. Okay, Brent, we'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, Scott, that was Brent, the food truck CEO. What did you think of his story? Oh, I, I mean, I think I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I think it's wonderful that he set himself up with such a strong financial position going into his business, and that he so clearly is passionate about and enjoys what he's doing right now. And I think that that's just another example of how strong money foundations can really help set you up to be happier, or have more options, or have a better life. And in this case, it goes from a high-paying job as a nurse to a I guess lower paying, at least lower paying per hour job is it running a pizza truck company, but with upside, something that he's excited about, something that could make him a lot more money down the line, and something that's genuinely making other his customers and himself happy. Yeah, I really think you can't underestimate the absolute draining nature of a toxic job, a job that you hate going to, a job that it's like all you do is think about this horrible experience that you're having. And like Brent said, it seeps into every minute of your life because when you're not there, you're thinking about how much you hate it. You're talking about how much you hate it. It's horrible to be part of that. So what is that phrase, Scott? Entrepreneurs are the only people on earth who will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week. But And then there's the other cliche, you never work a day in your life if you love what you do. And that's so true. I've had jobs that I hated and I love this job and I'm excited to come to work. And jobs that I hated, it was like, oh, let me hit snooze one more time. I don't want to get up. Let me take my time. Oh, darn, I'm late to work. Like, it's just, you don't care as much. And 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 I think, I I just want to chime in here as well that I think that like going beyond that, like bigger pockets, we have this thing around GWC, which is from the book Traction. It's a a model for running a business. But employees need to get it, want it, and have the capacity to do it. They need to understand what they need to do. They need to want to do that job, and they need to have the skill set and time to be able to do it, right? Like, if you hate your job, you don't want it. And and you're at risk for losing it at some point as well. So at least over the long term, right? Even if you're even if you're not in an immediate danger in the short run, like you're just not going to do as good a job with that. And so I think that when you're thinking through this stuff, a lesson to learn from Brent is that if you hate your job and you don't want it, set up that that strong financial position, work on it that much more aggressively. Get yourself to the point where you have options, if not total financial freedom for the rest of your life, options to do stuff like what Brent is doing here, starting a business or getting out of it, because you're going to be happier and healthier right away after starting the business, even if you're making less money in the first year or two of getting it started than you are if you stay at that miserable, soul-sucking job, which, by the way, is not a guarantee, especially if you hate it and and you allow that to show. Yeah, and it's hard to not allow that to show when you hate your job. And leaving your soul-sucking job, just your whole body lifts up. It's it's so fantastic. But you can't leave your soul-sucking job if you are in a position of financial weakness. I mean, you can go get another job, but when you have to work for somebody, it's not as much fun. That's the trick. Don't, if you're optimized on the income front, for your job and spending all every bit of that income, you are stuck. Sorry, you can't do what Brent just did. If you spend less than you make and do that for a prolonged period of time, so many options appear, many of which are gonna pay you shorter in the short, a little bit less in the short run, but have the potential to earn more in the long run or make you happier immediately. And so that's the whole trick to this, this thing called capitalism. Don't max out and then max out your income and then max out your spending to match it simple as that if you're listening. This doesn't exist. This easy button does not exist in the financial space. You have to do the work. That was easy. Oh, it comes out the back way. That was easy. I love this easy button. Yeah, everything. What was the uh, the David Green episode 12? 
an overnight success in 12 short years. Like you have to put the work in. But when you put the work in, look at what you can have. A lifetime of working 80 hours a week in a hot pizza oven, a hot pizza trailer. <laughs> That's <laughs> but right. But he and, loves it. And with that, let's let's uh, sign off. Hot, uh, 80 hours a week to, in a hot pizza oven trailer. So, <laughs> rolling in the dough. <laughs> rolling in the dough. Oh, I quit you. Okay. The show notes for today's episode can be found at biggerpockets.com slash money show 173-5. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 173 and a half of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying we got to hit the road. market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.